a Podcast One production. Your Morning Agenda, Summer Edition. Hello, Natasha Belling here. Thanks for your company this Monday, the 4th of January. As many of you are enjoying a well-deserved break, we are looking at the top news stories that have set the agenda in 2020 and will still be making news throughout 2021. We'll be back with all the breaking news from Monday, the 11th of January. But until then, please enjoy your Morning Agenda's Summer Edition. The COVID-19 vaccine is what the world has been waiting for, but is it really the silver bullet? Mass vaccinations are already rolling out across the UK and US, with predictions Australia is set to introduce a similar program sometime this year. But will the vaccine actually stop the spread of the virus and will COVID ever be eliminated? Today, we are joined by one of Australia's leading epidemiologists and infectious diseases control experts. Professor Mary Louise McClaw says Australia is leading the world in tackling the crisis, but the vaccine is only part of the long-term solution. She says the only way we can contain the spread of the highly contagious virus is for the urgent introduction of rapid COVID testing and a dramatic overhaul of hotel quarantine. Professor, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure, Natasha. As we're watching the COVID crisis continue to unfold overseas, latest stats show there's more than 3,500 Americans dying every day from COVID. How are we travelling on handling the crisis on the international stage? We are um, the poster country, uh, of course, along with New Zealand, uh, as we are traveling. I attended an online uh, meeting uh, where our Chief uh, Medical Officer of Australia, Brendan Murphy, um, gave a presentation along with all of the other uh, chief medical officers around our Western Pacific region. And of course, Australia was constantly mentioned as having an amazing uh, response. I mean, some of the other nations, of course, have had no infections and they've been very fortunate. But given we have uh, the response uh, and the ability to be able to not just manage it, but get it close to elimination has been remarkable. And I would congratulate not just the authorities, but it's really the Australian people who've decided to be the managers and come on board and do a wonderful job. What do you think the secret to our success has been? I've been looking at different countries and each country I think has a kind of a personality. Our personality uh, is very much um, a a we personality. Uh, We look after our mates, our friends, our community. I think that we, rather than the me, personality has um, enabled us to get on board with any instruction that the authorities have asked us. uh, Because if it's a me uh, culture, uh, we're always concerned about our rights and how it interferes with our life. But Australians are very much, uh, we're all in it together. Um, War effort, pandemic effort, we're very much a we um, society. And we are a society, of a multicultural society, and, uh, you know, all our migrants uh, have the same mentality. They get here, they are very much a we 
uh, group and they get on board with the, the collective good. So I think that's what's made us so successful. Do you think that me culture has been a key factor in the catastrophe that is continuing to unfold in the US? Absolutely. Uh, it's a me culture. Uh, but when, of course, they've got um, an aim to get to the moon or to get to the, the rover on Mars, they can get it together. Uh, but they have to have a collective aim because the me culture tends to take over. And I think with better leadership, they could have um, tapped into that ability for the Americans to come together for the collective good. Uh, I mean, they are an amazing uh, group of people. They have a wealth of experience, particularly in infection control and outbreak. And I know as an epidemiologist, I went to America to do some training. Um, it, it used to be the mecca for um, infectious diseases control, uh, and they are very generous with their knowledge. They have just had very poor leadership so that each me has uh, dominated rather than uh, their, their collective good. And I can only imagine that next year we will see a complete change in the culture of, you know, the collective culture of America. Mary Louise, in regards to Australia, you're completely correct, especially at the beginning of last year in 2020. Australians were incredibly compliant and we did an extraordinary job. As we seem to get the COVID-19 crisis under control, there started to emerge a dangerous complacency with a concerning number of people saying, oh, the crisis is over, we've eliminated the virus, and then we've seen these outbreaks start. How dangerous do you think that complacency is, especially when we need to remind ourselves of what is unfolding overseas? It is very dangerous. Um, But I'll take you back to the culture of Australians, the the collective. And collectively, we are a highly optimistic um, population. And so what we've seen is um, a very successful uh, campaign in getting this virus down to practically elimination. And so we're now celebrating and we've started to you know, get very uh, complacent because of this optimism that it'll be all right, she'll be all right. So we really do need to remember we are still in a dangerous position and always will be. And we really do need to stay alert constantly because this virus I've described previously as a psychopath, it will take any opportunity for us to let our guard down. And Australians do enjoy being relaxed. They're not um, a highly anxious uh, group collectively. And so, yes, we can enjoy ourselves, but not the pre-COVID way. We need to be very um, COVID-aware and still be that optimistic group, but certainly the um, the group that says we're not going to let this virus take hold. How do you walk that fine line between not scaring people and then having backlash, but ma- making people more aware that we have to live in a COVID-safe way moving forward? I think straight away of the very, very successful AIDS campaign, the Grim Reaper ad during the 1980s, that was so incredibly successful. Do you think we still need an awareness campaign, a mass health campaign across Australia during this situation? I, I do. I think that we constantly need to be reminded. Now, I'll just take you back to that era because I was a postgrad during that time and 
had the uh, great uh, honor of uh, working for the late David Cooper, Professor Cooper. Uh, so I remember that era very well. And uh, this pandemic reminds me of this era where we're learning at a rapid speed. Um, but one of the big campaigns that was highly successful was if it's not on, it's not on. Mm. So it took the campaign from frightening to then how to cope with this. And I think we need to do the same thing. And we need to have people that can speak to the young. It's the 20 to 39-year-olds in Australia that have been 50% of the cases. And they're the ones that are at risk of also spreading it. So we need a, a social leader for that era, for that um, group of, of people to explain to them why they need to be uh, vigilant constantly, and particularly uh, the very vulnerable in that group, the disadvantaged, that are working multiple jobs because they're trying to put food on the table. And those multiple jobs take them to multiple workplaces, and they often then, of course, live in um, quite crowded conditions, and all of that uh, goes to increasing the spread. So we need to reach out to each one of them and their employers uh, to uh, make sure that they remain safe because they are our future and we don't want them to go into their middle age uh, with anything like what we call long COVID with the signs and the symptoms that just don't go away for a really long time. Uh, so yes, we need a campaign that, uh, that speaks to particularly that group. Professor, you make an excellent point there about long haulers. There is growing data and evidence, especially from overseas, about COVID survivors suffering long-term consequences and health side effects. And that's always been my concern, especially with young Australians getting COVID or even children, is we don't know the long-term consequences. Absolutely. And in fact, um, Natasha, the first WHO meeting I went to, in um, the 11th of February, we didn't know about what the long-term consequences were. We didn't really have a handle on the fact that it was more an inflammatory disease rather than a respiratory one. Then we had another group meeting where each of the uh, different themes of um, COVID met uh, electronically. And the clinical epidemiologists didn't talk about long COVID. And it really only happened... Uh, very soon after that meeting, where an English uh, physician uh, felt unwell, even though he wasn't infectious anymore and he hadn't been hospitalized. And I think he brought uh, the, to the consciousness of us all this nasty long-term effect. Uh, and I think it's because most cases were hospitalized. And I wouldn't like to call them mild because that would be uh, disrespecting what they experienced. So I prefer to call them non-hospitalized COVID rather than mild. But I think because they weren't hospitalized, they may not have been uh, surveilled as much as they could have been for us to be witness to this long hauler effect earlier on. And I've been contacted by other people who've had not COVID, but other um, very serious viral infections saying that the same thing happened to them. And we used to kind of call it, you know, fatigue, chronic fatigue. And I think that uh, we now need to realise that we were probably dismissive of those um, who had a serious viral infection 
um, putting it down to either a mental ill health or yes, it'll be okay, you'll get better. So I think that um, we need to learn from the past and take this seriously and start surveilling them for how long it takes them to get better because if the majority of uh, cases are in the 20 to 39 year olds and they weren't hospitalized, then we need to find out very soon uh, how long it has taken them to really feel productive and healthy and happy again because we don't want them to have uh, lung uh, infections or lung um, uh, problems, you know, breathing problems because they talk about not being able to even get out of bed or, you know, walk to the kitchen without feeling exhausted. And that exhaustion is unpredictable and very severe, along with other major organ issues. And, you know, they're our future and they're future parents and they're future productive members of society. And we want them to be happy and healthy. So uh, we certainly don't want them to catch um, COVID at all. Professor, initially in uh, the start of 2020, there was a school of thought even being discussed here in Australia that we needed to look at herd immunity. It was, I thought, a very insensitive a school of thought survival of the fittest because as we know now, COVID also affects the fit and healthy. It's not just those with uh, compromised immune systems. We've now seen what has started to unfold in Sweden. Do you think we did get it right? And in hindsight, shutting down economies was the right way to go, not only on the economic front, but also on the health front and the long-term front for our country? We definitely got it right, Natasha. I mean, this idea of herd immunity was one, um, based uh, incorrectly on uh, influenza. And two, it was cruel. Uh, Australians are very um, are adopters of public health. Uh, in in the main. I mean, we um, take up uh, vaccination very well. Uh, we've also identified that if people are too slow in taking up vaccination, we have uh, methods to encourage them to take it up because uh, collectively we believe that we're not going to leave anybody behind who can't elicit a response. And this idea of herd immunity was taken out of context. We have herd immunity related to how many people we need to be vaccinated so we can mm. protect those that can't be vaccinated or protect those that have been vaccinated but don't uh, produce a, a long-term or a um, antibody response that will protect them. So that had been taken out of context because we, we certainly don't want people to have to have any nasty infectious disease to then build up an immunity. And we've learnt uh, from whooping cough and other diseases that herd immunity often doesn't last very long. And we're finally realising now that with COVID, this immunity uh, to the next infection may only last somewhere between three and eight months. Yes. So it's not very long. So we certainly uh, did the right thing and the right thing for the economy. Go in fast and hard, suffer uh, in the short term to have a long-term gain. Mary Louise, talking about the vaccine, we've all been holding our breath, thinking as soon as we get the vaccine, we can return to a new normal. Tell us about the vaccine. Will Is the vaccine the silver bullet? Mm. The vaccine is certainly a great bullet, but I wouldn't say it's necessarily silver. It could be copper or <laughs> one of the other <laughs> precious metals, but definitely not the silver bullet because at the moment... Um, 
the pharmaceutical companies are releasing a vaccine that is safe um, but will keep you from having symptomatic or potentially severe COVID. But it may not protect people from getting um, a silent COVID, so asymptomatic COVID. Now, that is important from a public health perspective because if you could catch this silent COVID, and this is theoretical because the data that's been released is very um, a small amount of data, and hopefully the pharmaceutical companies will continue their trials so we learn more. But it would appear as if they have only really tracked those that have had symptoms. So we could still be uh, carrying the virus and still inadvertently spreading it, although if we are asymptomatic, we may uh, spread it at a lower rate than if we did have symptoms because we know when you have symptoms, your viral load is higher and therefore your ability to spread it is higher. But nevertheless, we could still spread it to the very vulnerable um, in the population who think they've been vaccinated and are, um, uh, prevent, you know, are, are protected from COVID at all. Or we still have the elderly who can't be vaccinated because they have an immune deficiency. So we still have to be thoughtful, even once we get vaccinated, to uh, not be you know, laissez-faire about this, not be uh, too um, pleased with ourselves and go about life as if it was pre-COVID. And particularly uh, traveling overseas, uh, you may pick it up or you may take it to a vulnerable community that hasn't had the chance yet to be vaccinated. So we still have to be responsible. What's the long-term outlook here, Professor? Because I know with the Spanish flu that happened a century ago, it eventually did disappear. Is this something that we can hope for in the next two or three years? So the Spanish flu is interesting, Natasha. It, uh, it disappeared quite quickly because what keeps influenza going around, uh, are people indoors crowded and of course the war effort. And uh, we saw in one place of America when they were trying to increase support for the war effort, they had a ticket um, parade and of course it spread again uh, where another state in America didn't and they had more control over it. And of course there is this seasonal effect of influenza. So they could get rid of it. And we were hoping that this virus was going to be similar and similar to the SARS-CoV-1, which caused the SARS outbreak in 2003. That went at the end of June. And so we were thinking, great, maybe this is very uh, reactive to humidity and temperature. And it certainly is, uh, you know, um, reactive to a bit of that. But what this has that the other viruses don't didn't have, and this is what makes it so... Um, successful in hooking on to human beings and spreading is that it can be spread pre-symptomatic period, much longer than influenza, which about 24 hours before you get symptoms, you are highly infectious. This one, you can be infectious from uh, day one to before you get symptoms the day before, but mostly 50% of people become infectious to others on day three of uh, becoming infected and while you're asymptomatic. And that makes control of this virus so difficult. So um, where do I see the future? So knowing that, that this virus can spread 
during that pre-symptomatic um, period and that the vaccine may not protect us from asymptomatic spread and we could still spread it a bit. I've seen, Natasha, um, a number of years yet before uh, we get a handle on this and it eventually hasn't got enough people to continue the spread because it's going to take a long time to vaccinate a full community. Um, apparently in the UK, they're vaccinating about um, you know, a couple of thousand um, a day. They're going to have to increase that effort. Otherwise, it's going to take them a few years to get around to uh, vaccinating their full community. So there's going to have to be a war effort um, to vaccinate everybody rather than taking two years to vaccinate everybody. But even if we do vaccinate all Australians and all everybody around the world, that's going to take several years and then several more years for this to peter out. I mean, it took us 20 years to get rid of polio, but that was because the West and the uh, low and middle income countries were underserviced with their vaccine efforts. Um, and certainly WHO and all of the other non-government um, organizations helped cover the low to middle income countries with that vaccine. The um, COVID facility um, uh, in uh, WHO is ensuring that there's equitable um, coverage with this um, vaccine, that all uh, people get a rollout initially, but it will still take a lot of time. So sadly, we're going to have to uh, live with the threat, not live with this dreadful virus, but live with the threat for at least another half a dozen years, but at a lower level of alert. We can have a less anxiety of these enormous outbreaks that close the economies. Professor, in regards to moving forward, I noticed the other day that you're part of a group of Australians calling for rapid testing. Is that something we can look at in the short term to make this a better environment to live in, that rapid testing, so high-risk employees, frontline workers, teachers, all of those essential workers can know at all times whether they're positive or negative? As you say, workers going home, we are totally in the dark about are they going home from high-risk um, employment um, environments, you know, into the community carrying potentially an infection. And uh, we will find out, of course, that uh, some of our outbreaks um, in uh, Australia uh, will be from overseas um, travellers or uh, workers coming in. And they are the ones that we need to screen. We need every single person coming into Australia, not just the travellers, but the crew and those that work in the airport and in the quarantine hotel tested. So every traveller gets tested, not at day two, but straight away. So we know how to treat them, which um, hotel they need to go to, and all of the crew members of um, airlines, regardless of whether they're Australian, they can go back home and self-isolate. We need to know exactly uh, what they're dealing with at the get-go. They could also take um, take-home tests um, for for COVID as well because there's some there's a very good take-home um, uh, test kit that is being rolled out in America because they can't cope with the the testing at clinics at the moment. So, and then of course all of the staff in hospitals coming home at the end of the shifts, and of course staff going 
into the aged care facility if we don't want them to be seated um, via the staff. So it has oh, so many potentials and it also has the potential of instead of um, having interstate travellers expected to quarantine for 14 days, they could be tested with a rapid point of care test. And yes, it has a very small uh, uh, number of people that might go into the community that test uh, negative when they really are positive, but it's less than um, uh, point, uh, less than 2%. It's a very, very, very small proportion, but it would allow the economy to be opened up, people to see their family and friends. Mary Louise, 2020 last year was incredibly tough for a lot of people, especially overseas. People have been separated for their loved ones. I know we're surrounded by so much uncertainty with this virus. Have you any silver linings in those dark clouds? Because your predictions for the future are their tough years ahead. But what would you say to Australians right now listening to this episode? We are in paradise. Uh, our um, well, authorities, be it a federal or state, care for us. Um, they've got our best interest at heart. Um, so we are um, we are well looked after by good leadership. Um, so I think that we should be able to add some more science to this so that we can do um, more travel and uh, and have more of a national approach uh, where instead of closing up borders immediately, we have a national agreement of when we do close borders and start using more point of care rapid testing so we don't have to close those borders enjoy our gorgeous country um, and um, look we're all uh, missing our overseas family and friends and um, you know occasionally it it causes me to take a, a breath that I won't see mm. my friends living overseas for quite some time but uh, we're alive we're doing well and um, we need to sort of be grateful for the for for all of those blessings we are in it together mary louise thank you so much for your wonderful advice and all of your expert analysis today it is much appreciated look i appreciate um people like you um you know educating the community and bringing them on board oh bless you thank you very much thank you natasha and don't forget your morning agenda with the latest news headlines is back from Monday the 11th of January. Tomorrow we'll be back with another episode in the summer series where we'll have a special report on our country's mental health crisis. We'll hear one very personal story about suicide and one expert solution to helping those most in need. I'm Natasha Belling. Thanks so much for your company. Have a great day and we look forward to seeing you soon. <laughs>